0: Thank you, Chase. Thank you, worship team. Uh, it's a joy to be here with us, with you guys this morning. Um, I'm very glad to be bringing God's word again to you this morning. And uh, um, we're continuing through the book of Nehemiah. I was about to say Hebrews, but that was, we're in the new book now. So Nehemiah or Nehemiah. And, uh, and today we are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And so I'm going to invite you to go there with your uh, Bible phone or read, uh, follow along as well um, in, in this screen here. And we're going to read that this morning, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So let me read that this morning. This is God's word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine... and I took out the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is not but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the, let the king live, live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed? by fire then the king said to me what are you requesting so i prayed to the god of heaven and i said to the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to judah to the city of of my father's graves that i might that i may rebuild it and the king said to me the queen sitting beside him how long will you be gone and when will you return so so it so it pleased The king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asa, the keeper of the king's forest, in that he may may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray once again. Father, once again we come before your presence. We thank you for your Word, for both the Old and the New Testament, Lord God. For for your revealed, inspired, Lord God, Word, inerrant Word that inspires us, Lord God, that changes us and corrects us and rebukes us, Lord God, and. And equips us. We thank you for it, Lord God. We ask you, Lord God, that as we speak today your word, that that will be the only thing that would remain your infallible word in your, in our hearts. That they, those words will be an encouragement for us, Lord God. Anything that is not said, that is not godly, Lord God, we be removed and out of the way, Lord God, and not be a distraction this morning. But let your word remain in us for transformation, for edification. We want to praise you, Jesus, this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So as I mentioned, we've been going through the uh, study in the book of Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, and today we are in chapter 2. Now before diving into the passage, let's just go ahead and remember and recall uh, a little bit of the surrounding context that we have been through here. As uh, so we remember the chosen people of God, Israel, and they had their struggling kingdom, and they were continually disobeying God. And they continued acting in disobedience before the Lord. So consequently, the Lord judges them as he said he would. And the judgment comes upon them by the oppression of many enemies. One of those enemies were the people of the Babylonians or the Babylonians. One of those enemies who exiled the Jews out of their own land in 586 BC and later on. Just as, as, as history recalls and as the word of God confirms, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. They took over all the regions, including the region of Israel and the region where the Jews were exiled. And in the midst of this here, we, we see that there are two kings who are allowing for many of the deported Jews to go back to their own land. So this going back to their own land sort of... Uh, uh, ex- uh reversed exodus in a way it's in a it's, it's recording three different occasions so the book of ezra records the first two and the book of nehemiah recounts that that last going back to israel and this is led by the leader that's named after the book who was as we have learned a cupbearer to the persian king now, as we recall from chapter 1, the, the book starts with a story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah learning about the pitiful state of his own people back in Jerusalem. And despite previous attempts to rebuild their kingdom, as we read from verse 4, as soon as Nehemiah heard this word by his friends, the Bible says that he sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. And then we read in Nehemiah's prayer From verses 5 through 11. And now something important for us to understand here from the start is is Nehemiah's character. And that's something that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. And actually Rusty dedicated a whole sermon last week on one aspect that was very strong in Nehemiah's life. And that is the studying and reading and upholding of of God's word. And that's why we dedicated a whole sermon on Psalm 1. It was not a standalone sermon of sorts. It's actually expounding on one of those godly uh, uh, characters or godly qualities of nehemiah and so as we've been studying nehemiah's qualities only from studying chapter one and some of verse two today and chapter two let's just recount and analyze some of these godly qualities of nehemiah and and i can point seven of these out and so if you're making notes or something like that you can uh at least write the title of these and uh, these are some of the things uh, godly qualities of Nehemiah that we have seen. Number one, Nehemiah's primary identity as a child of the promise. As the beginning of the book says that we know that Nehemiah is part of the exiled people of God, but he is working a unique position for the king. He is a cupbearer. So this job would place him very close to the king and to the many surrounding luxuries and temptations of the time. But nevertheless, Nehemiah held on to this to his identity, that he carried from his home in Jerusalem and to the promises given by God through Abraham. And Nehemiah, his identity was, we can see it by the way he responds to the news of his oppressed people and sinful people and from his prayer and his connection with God and for his boldness to be part of the solution, as we will see later on in chapter 2. So Nehemiah teaches us here from this first point that no matter the circumstances that we're in, we are first and first and foremost children of God. Secondly, we see Nehemiah's godly concern and love for his own people. We can see that from verse 4. Again, it reminds us that Nehemiah was, was deeply grieved by the sinful state of his own people. Not only did he mourn and fast, but as we will see today, he also acted. He also did something. This is a genuine display of his affection and love. For his people, here Nehemiah teaches us that what it means to be truly concerned for the body of Christ, praying for them, and it's possible only to Christ, as we know, he unites us, all brothers and sisters. So our love flows as a response from his love to us, and this was shown in Nehemiah's life. Number three, Nehemiah's godly practice of lamenting before the Lord, and we recounted that a couple of weeks ago, verse four again, shows us that Nehemiah stopped and mourned after he received the news, right? He was not simply an an apathetic administrator, right, who turned around and, and and forgot about the real state of his people and just wanted to resolve everything quickly, right, or to look for immediate solutions. No, he contemplated and lamented and mourned for days. He earnestly pleaded before the Lord. He was exemplifying the anguish of the psalmist, who in many occasions poured his heart out before the Lord. Nehemiah teaches us here that lamenting before God is an honest means through which we can arrive at delighting in the providence and goodness of the Lord. Number four, Nehemiah's godly discipline of prayer and fasting before the Lord. Verses 5-11 reflected the intimate relationship that existed between Nehemiah and his God. His practice of prayer and fasting were not neglecting, not even in the toughest moments of his life. And in fact, those are the most needing moments of his life for him to practice those. But as we see, it seems to be the natural response just as part of his identity and who he is. Nehemiah teaches us how prayer and fasting are to be a habitual and established part of our way of life. Number five. Through Nehemiah's prayer, we learn of his serious knowledge and obedience to God's word. His prayer emanated from a heart that knew God's word. If we remember that prayer from verses 5-11, he appeared to be the we- well aware of the fact that we are able to know God intimately through the reading of his word. Nehemiah mentions aspects of God's attributes, specifications of God's promises, recalling the accounts of the Torah, mentioning people like Moses, etc., Nehemiah is teaching us that reading God's word must remain at the center of knowing Him. And this is why Rusty again dedicated a whole sermon last week on that particular point. Number six, Nehemiah's personal and corporate acknowledgement of sin. In verses six and seven, we read this from chapter one Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Let To hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, he says. The statutes and rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah, again, was well aware of the sins of the people of Israel and how God has scattered them as a result of that, just as he said he would if they continued to be unfaithful and idolatrous. But Nehemiah does not stop at the corporate level of acknowledging the sin. He also recognizes that his own household and even himself falls short of God's faithfulness, of God's, of that faithfulness, I'm sorry. That is required of them. And they were disobedient before God as well. He saw that not only his people in his community are in disobedience, but he searches his own heart to recognize that he also has failed to keep God's commandments. Nehemiah here is teaching us to examine our own hearts constantly. And to see... Instead of dwelling and seeing the sins of others without even seeing our own. And this rings a bell, right, for that New Testament passage. Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew 7, 5, where he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the right to take the speck out of your own brother's eyes comes after considering dealing with your own log that is right in front of your eye. Which by definition is much bigger. So Nehemiah did grieve and went to God for the sins of his people, but only after seeing a well examined, a self examination, a personal examination of his own sin as well as being part of the greater problem. And so he had repentance as part of his way of life, as we should all have in our lives. And finally, a seventh quality that we see here is nehemiah's trust for god's steadfast love and in the prayer we see once again where he says "O lord god of heaven the great and awesome god who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love and keep his commandments from the start nehemiah recognizes that god would always be god that he never changes and that he will keep his promises and that his love for his chosen people is unconditional Nehemiah teaches us that having the right view of God in the midst of our troubles and tribulations builds a more unshakable trust in his ability to get us through for his glory. He was seeing God for who he was and that anchored him in his trust for him. So these are some of the qualities I recall having uh, that we saw from the life of Nehemiah's character from chapter 1. And now these godly traits are important to keep in mind now for today's message because in chapter 2 we see that they are the very foundation for Nehemiah's courage to, the, to restore the kingdom and the people of God. So now having those in mind, let's go ahead and go to chapter 2 to see more of these exemplary qualities that should be of great encouragement for us today. But let's go ahead and read now verse by verse the account of Nehemiah 2. So verses 1 and 2, where we count this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid. Now, this chapter here starts by giving us again the month of the year in which the events happened here. And as we remember from chapter 1, actually Nehemiah, when he first received the news about his people, he also we also start that account with a month. In chapter 1, we are giving that it is the month of Shislev, which is around November or December. And now in chapter 2, The chapter starts again giving us the month of the year, which is the month of Nisan, not the car, but just the Hebrew word for the month, which is March or April. So we can notice then, with somewhat of an intentionality here, that the author wants us to understand that it has been around four months since he first learned about his people and grieved and prayed and knew about the Grieving situation of his people in the time when he approached the king. So we can probably safely assume that this, these four months were spent in much mourning and praying. And as we will see, preparation as well. He was probably also making preparations for this time just by these specifications that we see on Nehemiah's response to the king later on. Now, if you see there as well, in these two verses, it alludes to the fact that he had not been sad in the, in the king's presence during this time, during those four months. And maybe it was because of the nature of his job. One that was to be having an appearance of joy, stability, and support to the king. He was very close to the king. But finally, Nehemiah just displayed a noticeable Sadness, despondency in his countenance. Evidence in what Proverbs tells us in Proverbs fifteen and thirteen, right? That a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but a sorrowful heart or the sorrow of heart, this with the sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And so that probably was the case with him. He finally showed sadness in his face. And so Nehemiah's condition caused the king to ask about Nehemiah's heart and reasoning for his mourning. As being a cupbearer, again we know that Nehemiah was physically close to the king, so he was able to notice the counting, his countenance from up close. He saw that it was nothing like he wasn't sick or anything. He was actually in a state of grieving and depression, perhaps. Now the king went and asked, "What's wrong?" Right? It might have been out of concern for Nehemiah's soul, since they were close, but or maybe as well out of some kind of suspicion for plotting against the king. But whatever the case might have been, Nehemiah was rightly afraid when he was asked by the king what was wrong with him. And he was especially fearing the king because his true answer would imply a sense of disloyalty in many cases. He was about to ask the Persian king to leave his kingdom in order to build another kingdom. So that scenario caused Nehemiah to be afraid. But in spite of his fear he moves on to make his request known. You know perhaps as he was there in that moment he recalled the words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I'm sorry of Joshua chapter 1 verses eight through nine, "This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, And then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Maybe that was in his heart as he approached the king. And Nehemiah was afraid, but above his fear, he trusted in God's promise and felt God's call to be used. And so moving on to verse 3, Nehemiah introduces his request to With these words, he says, let the king live forever. And that's there for a reason. This was, you know, because there was a sense of disloyalty that might have been displayed by his face or his request. Nevertheless, Nehemiah wants to make sure that he is giving out back a sense of loyalty to the king. So he starts with these words, let the king live forever. That is a very loyalty-driven statement that you say to the king. And then after he does that, he explains the reasoning for his sadness. And he, some people say that he probably crafted his words carefully here because of the king's response to that. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why not? Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grace, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah opens his heart before the king. Telling him about the condition of his people in his own city? Now the manner in which Nehemiah formulated this answer might have sent the signal that caused the king to ask this follow up question in verse four. The king asks, What are you requesting? What are you saying? What what, what do you you know? Are you trying to tell me that you want to do something? And as we suspect that Nehemiah wasn't just going to sit around and do nothing about his people, and probably the king knew that about Nehemiah, that he wasn't just going to sit down and grieve, which is an important part, as we have mentioned, but didn't stay there. But once again, before he makes requests and lays down the strategy, once again it says, and this is so beautiful, Nehemiah, what, did it, what does it say there in that verse, verse 4? So, at the end of verse 4, so I prayed to the God. heaven this is another amazing account in which we can see the intimate relationship that Nehemiah had with God and how everything was brought up in prayer before the Lord it mentions once again that he prayed before bringing his request to the king the same starting words in Nehemiah 1 the God of heaven perhaps Nehemiah recalled in his heart in his mind quietly that first plea of mercy of God's promise to be fulfilled from verse 5 through 11 of chapter 1, this would be a very timely prayer before approaching approaching the king. Nehemiah, indeed, heeded to the words of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, when it says that in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And indeed, he did. On one hand, we can see here Nehemiah's bravery, right? How he stepped forth to speak to the king in spite of the fear and the danger that was involved. His desire to serve God's people and his God were more urgent than his own fears. But on the other hand, we also notice his absolute dependence on God to enable him to go forth with his request and his plan. Now these two aspects of Nehemiah's character His decisiveness, independence upon God are not at odds here. Many tend to think that those who always pray about it or contemplate things never get things done, right? And on the other side, many tend to criticize the ones who are quick to act and take risks at any cost. But in the Christian life, this should not be at odds. We should both be decisive and dependent at the same time. One commentary reads the, the, the following words about these verse. In the midst of this intense situation, Nehemiah's thoughts go to God. This shows us how reliant on God Nehemiah really is. He instinctively calls on God. He, he instinctively calls on God. The kind of prayer that we saw in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 will give the rise to the kind of prayer that he, we see here in chapter 2, verse 4. The scripture-saturated, God-focused prayer for God to do what God promised. In Nehemiah chapter 1, 5 through 11, has produced Nehemiah a heart that longs to see God's word fulfilled. Nehemiah's private prayer was has spilled into his daily life. He wants... We want our own Bible study, prayer and fasting to produce this in us for the advance of the gospel. Amen to that. Brothers and sisters, that we might be like Nehemiah, right, in our daily walk. His relationship and his knowledge and love for God's word. To sustain our daily decision making, our daily conversations, our daily reactions to things and endeavors. How many of us really after reacting to something, after coming before something, after speaking about something, after before saying anything, how many of us say, and I went to the Lord of heaven and prayed. I fail at this very much so. And, and I hope and we pray that we can all do this, have this relationship with God and connection. And as the word says, to be constantly in prayer. That's what it means. Are we taking in everything in prayer before the Lord? Are we weak and heavy laden, right? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let us hold on to what Nehemiah was holding on. His trust in the Lord and his promises should be our anchor by which we can confidently before the Lord for help and encouragement. So again, every time we get up, every time we do what we have to do in the mundane, in the routine area, everything before the lord your plans your day your opportunities to minister the gospel to someone at work or someone at home your family time with your spouse and children your dealings at work your dealings with one another in your weekly social life a culture of prayer must be created in us individually and collectively this also serves as a constant reminder that we are completely dependent upon god for everything And once again, we mentioned this verse before, Philippians 4 comes to mind. Do not be anxious about anything, because for sure, we can know that Nehemiah was a little bit anxious, right? Before coming to the king. But it ties in well when it says, but in everything, with thanksgiving and supplication, let your request be known to God. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He exemplifies this verse here in this situation. So now seeing that here, we move on to verse 5 with the very request. And after praying, like it says here, probably quietly and briefly before answering answering to the king, he goes ahead and says in verse 5, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your side, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Once again, in a very respectful but still bold manner, Nehemiah proceeds to request the king to leave for some time to rebuild the fallen walls of Jerusalem. And in verse 6, we see a positive follow-up question for by the king. It appears that Artaxerxes was fond of his cupbearer, but nonetheless, he is wanting to be assured of Nehemiah's loyalty, as we see here, so he asks in verse 6, right? He says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? Like, hint, hint, you're coming back, right? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. When I had given him a time. And it seems like he was not just going to, like, you know, spur of the moment, sort of like, ah, give me about six months. I think I can get it done, right? We don't see signs of that spun, spun, spun. Spontaneity. Is that, is that how you say it? Spontaneous like that. <clears throat> so the queen is mentioned here, probably to denote some sense of witnessing the whole agreement situation. And then Nehemiah gives the king, the king a time frame for the project. So once again, it is evident that Nehemiah did not come by the spur of the moment or spontaneously, but he had been meditating and carefully planning for the challenge ahead. And look how carefully Nehemiah had devised his plan to return to Jerusalem. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Look at that. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let letters letters be written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and for the fortress of the temple. And for the wall of the city, and for the house that I, sh- that I shall occupy, and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand what I asked for a good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah prayed to God, lamented to God, read God's word, trusted in God's promise, and then took action and devised a plan to to restore what God what what was falling. And all this by God's grace. But sometimes we see leanings toward either side of the balance here. On one hand, there is this stigma around some circles that suggest that we are to loosely go about life just letting the Spirit of God pop up and answer as we go, right? Without any previous thought, any previous you know, planning, sort of this mystical way just to trust our gut for the very next step in life? Don't get me wrong. There are times when we are pressed to make quick decisions and trust the Spirit of God for the outcome, as we always should. But in most cases, we are to exercise the wisdom that is required of us to arrange for the future and for what God has called us to do as we pray and as we trust in God. And this is what Nehemiah did in the midst of his pain. His concern went beyond just sitting back. He was called of God to act. And on the other hand, we can see that many of us are obsessed with planning. We have planning apps and calendars. And and we always expect that the outcome is the exact outcome that we're planning for only. And we never allow for changes. or are never content with the changes that God may make. And sometimes in that obsession for organization, we never commit our ways to God. And James reminds us of this tension between praying and trusting and planning and acting and how that should all be in place. Let's recall that scripture in James 4 when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So we start with God and then we act by God's grace. So going back to Nehemiah's example, look at what one commentary says about his careful strategizing here. Just pay attention to this. He says, consider the facts. Nehemiah can give the king an amount of time that the journey and the rebuilding will take, verse 6. He knows exactly what kind of authorization he needs west of the Euphrates, chapter verse 7. And he knows exactly what materials he will need for the temple, wall, city, and his own house, his own dwelling, verse 8. So from these facts, it appears that Nehemiah has been praying and planning. Nehemiah has been pray, praying and planning. Nehemiah has been asking the Lord to have compassion on him in the presence of this man, as verse 11, uh, 11 says. And so, when the opportunity arises before Artaxerxes, he is prepared to make his request and unfold his plan. And this commentary encourages here, and it says, "Let me encourage you to follow Nehemiah's footsteps at this point." On this point, he seeks to be used of God. To see his own prayers answered. Study the Bible. Pray for God to do what He has promised to do in the Bible, and give thought on to how and what you can do to be used of the Lord to bring His promises to pass. What a beautiful reminder that is for us. It's a reminder for us not to be stuck, to, not to be stuck in the contemplation, in the grieving, in the prayer, in the hopeful thought, in the daydreaming. We are encouraged here to be part of the solution, to carefully think about ways to contribute in God's kingdom. And then we are to ask one another, how are we doing with this? Upon seeing the example of Nehemiah, what is our reaction upon seeing a, bro- a broken world and a broken people outside and inside the church? Do we sit back and let it all play out and hope that it will fix itself somehow and put itself back together one day or do we come to the lord in prayer trusting his word and rise up to be equipped for the work of ministry another commentary says this god's work and our planning are not contrary jay knows this prayer is where planning starts he says he prayed planned and acted in in independence on god's submission To his guidance on god and submission to his guidance neither is research contrary to dependence on god nehemiah knew who the officials were with whom he would have to deal so he requested the credentials he would need as he projected as as the project progressed and so he did homework right it is a nice thought to think about Doing good and being part of service to God in a fallen world and a fallen people. But beyond having conversations and beyond daydreaming. How do we carefully plan and research in order to serve one another better? Starting with our own family. How much time do we spend planning our week in order to keep what's important the first priority? Do we plan our family devotions? Converse, meaningful conversations with our children? Play time with our children? Do we plan... Do we plan dates with our wives? Do we plan meaningful conversations with our spouses? All the things that should nourish our family relationships must be planned in our day and age, guys. We plan for everything else, right? We plan for a work calendar. We have reminders for important meetings. But do we pin down on our calendar, play with my kids? Date my wife? Family worship? And let's be honest, we we stumble and fall and, and go back and forth. But we are to also be active and proactive in our priorities to serve one another. In our hospitality, how do we arrange our schedules, meal plans, topics of conversations to serve our people better at our home? How do we pray not only for but also with struggling believers? Are we sensitive to the needs around us? And how do we plan to be part of gospel-centered solutions? Do we call? Do we plan to call and text and visit one another? And here at Cornerstone, how do we prep our, our weekly schedule to intentionally serve the needs of the church? At a personal level, what is your routine for devotion? How do you plan for it? What are some specific ways in which you plan to have prayer and Bible reading? for your edification during the week in spite of the business. Nehemiah is teaching us here to trust God and act and plan and strategize. Serving God efficiently and faithfully requires careful planning and organizing. And we know that many many are not of the organized type. Many are not of the calendar type. But as we strive to be godly people... I mean, we are, we are required to be godly people, godly husbands and wives, godly parents, godly family members, godly church members, godly neighbors. Those are a lot of roles that we have to fulfill in our lives. And that requires more than just wishful thinking in order to be pleasing to the Lord with what we do and all by His grace. But as we mentioned, organization and planning and this mentality is not isolated. we It is always link, linked with our trust in God. As we read in the last part of verse 8, it says that the king granted me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. And let me say one more thing before that. As we remember, the, the plans of Nehemiah involved not only the building of the walls of Jerusalem, but also for his own house. And so that is also a reflection of, of the priority that he put in his own household. I'm not only placing importance in what I have to do for the God's kingdom, but I'm also looking out for my family, for my own place. And so he was not isolating one with the other. But going back to this, as we see that the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. One commentary again says this, the decisive factor, as Nehemiah recognized, was not his faith, but the object of it the god who was his god whose good and gracious hand was upon him the object of our faith is the one who determines the outcome of our plans as we did as we remember from proverbs he reminds us again proverbs 69 the mind of man plans his way but the lord directs his steps we see this combination of plans and trust right Proverbs sixty one: the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Even though Nehemiah carefully and faithfully planned his way to serve God's people in his kingdom, he still acknowledged that the hand of the Lord had the last word. He still trusted that as he plans, the answers of the Persian king's tongue was directed by God. He still trusted in that. He still knew that. Not even kings can thwart what God intends for his people. Proverbs Proverbs 21.1 reminds us of this. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So the king of kings is the one directing the Persian king's decision. He is the one who has the last word as we trust in him, and plan, and go ahead. We say, God, this is what I got. This is what I came up with. This is what I prayerfully have come up with. But from there on, it's all you. I trust you. So once again, we know this way was in Nehemiah's mind and heart. In his prayers, we can see that he trusts God's promises above any final decision of any king. He trusts his Word, his fulfillment of his promises, God's Word. So he moves and acts according to what has promised, trusting in who God is and what he says that he will do for his people. That is the priority. It's not that, oh, this king is a bad king and therefore he may say no to my request. No, he's not focused. On that. He's focused on the God who said that he will do whatever he said he will do. So acting in faith does not come from an isolated ability to be bold in the name of Christianity. It is an unwavering trust in God's promises. It is a humble disposition of the heart for God's ability to act on our behalf. And that's what ruled Nehemiah's heart before the king. The fear of the outcome of many situations should not dishearten our ability to faithfully plan And trust God for it. So our call is clear then from our passage for today. As we come to a close. As we trust in God and pray for his grace. We carefully move and act and plan to serve God's kingdom effectively. Galatians reminds us of this. In chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. While we have the opportunity, people, let us do good. That's what it says. And and through Nehemiah, we can learn then greatly about a godly man who runs the race of faith, but we know that Nehemiah is not the one we look to, right? We know that he's also a sinner, as he mentioned in chapter 1 in his prayer. We remember from Hebrews that the ability to be godly vessels for God comes from looking at Christ alone. And that's what Nehemiah did, looking forward to the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Through our union with him, we are able to trust alone in him for anything we do, for anything we plan, for anything we endeavor to do. And in Him also, we are able to wisely plan ahead to be effective servants in His kingdom. So as we look to Jesus, who prayed, lamented, and studied God's Word, and He was missional in the geography and His demography of the time, we look to Him as our ultimate example. And we trust that we accomplish it because He is in us. And through Him, it is possible. So let us trust christ this morning let me finish now with peter's words to encourage one another from chapter 4 verses 7 to 11 to reflect how everything that we do in word or deed comes by god and so we should trust in his ability to do that for us peter 4 7 through 11 says the end of all things is near therefore Be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who uh, is to do so, as one who is speaking the utterances utterances of God, whoever serves is to do so as the one serving by the strength which God supplies. By the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up actually and pray this morning.